Well, good morning. I wanted so bad to be up here playing the guitar and singing with them, but I, I just wanted to prepare my heart and uh, my spirit for this morning's message. My name is Tom Cook. For some of you who don't know me or met me or talk with me, uh, Bobby and I have lived here. We live in Rainier. We've been here about a year. I'm a retired Navy chaplain. I served a career in the Navy, uh, retiring almost 10 years ago uh, from the Navy. And then I uh, went back into the pastorate, and I pastored a church in eastern Oregon for nine years. And then the reason I am here in Thurston County is because I have four grandsons. And guess what today is? National Grandparents Sunday. And so I have my four grandsons back there. Stand up, boys. Stand up. There's my four grandsons, ages. There you go. They didn't expect a round of applause. My daughter, Amber, her husband, Justin, they attend the Mountain View Church. And uh, we decided we wanted to come be a part of your family. And so they live in Tenino. We live in Rainier. And uh, the reason I retired from full-time ministry is for them. Four boys, ages 9, 10, 11, 12. Tell you what, when you go and we take them fishing, that's a challenge. <laughs> I'm not sure who gets hooked more, me or the fish. Uh, but I appreciate uh, Dave letting me uh, be here this morning and to share with you and be part of your lives. I, I did a career in the Navy. Um, and it, in the early age of my 20s, uh, I, I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I'm from the, the state of Georgia. I grew up in Atlanta. Was drafted uh, during the Vietnam War. Did not want to go into the Army. I figured I swim better than I dodge bullets. And uh, lo and behold, I wound up in the submarine service. So I did six years in the submarine service in the Navy. And then, uh, let me tell you, that will make you believe in the Lord. <laughs> Felt the call for the ministry, and uh, by then I was already married to my wife, Bobby, and uh, felt the call for the ministry, and so when I got out of the Navy, I decided that I wanted to, to go to college, and so I went to Northwest Nazarene University in Nampa. That's where she was from. It made sense to me to be a hometown there, and so we moved to Nampa, then on to Kansas City for seminary, and then I pastored a small church for a while in Provo, Utah. You talk about independent duty. I learned a lot. From there, at the age of 34, I told my wife I want to join the Navy again. She said, Tom, you're not 18. You're 34. You got two kids. I said, well, I want to go back into the Navy and minister to the same kind of guy I was when I went in at 18, not knowing the Lord. And besides that, you get to be an officer's wife. She goes, ooh, an officer's wife. Oh, I like the sound of that. Not really. Actually, Bobby was my partner in ministry at the times that we had chapels ashore. And so I did a career there and then on the pastor for a little bit and, um, and then, you know, decided that uh, it was the time for me to retire from full-time ministry and dedicate myself as much as I can uh, to reach out into my family. I, I believe family is the most important thing that you can ever invest in. Amen. And uh, so that's why we're here. That's really why I moved to Thurston County, to be near my grandkids and my family. And uh, so I appreciate uh, Pastor Dave giving me a chance to be here this morning. And uh, uh, my message today is all about thirst. And uh, let me see, we're going to try something different. I'm a visual kind of guy. And so let's see if this is going to work. There it is. <laughs> my message today 
It's all about thirst. Now, the songs that we've sung, come to the water. I would imagine that there's just very few of us in this congregation who have been to the place physically desiring water to the point that it consumed you. The thing that you needed most right at this moment, right now, is water. Because in our culture and society today, all you have to do is turn the tap on and there it is. Some of you are old enough to remember these guys singing this song. I mean, remember those guys, Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers singing water, right? Oh, Dan and I, we need to have that water, you know? I remember uh, talking to my grandfather. I said, you know, Granddad, can you imagine people today are selling water in a plastic bottle for a dollar? He, he couldn't imagine that you would actually sell water in a plastic bottle for a dollar because we take it for granted today, our the ability to, to have water all around us. My message today is taken from John chapter 4 and two wells. And I brought with me, uh, well, a symbol of a well. Uh, I live in Rainier, and right down the street from me, a neighbor by the name of George makes these things. He sells them on the side. And uh, he had one out in his yard, and I said, George, can I, can I borrow one of your wells and have it up on the platform for me? He said, sure. So you could probably even smell the oil that he put on it because we'll freshly finished it this last week. We're going to talk about two kinds of wells this morning. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk through probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture, John chapter 4. You say, why is that, Tom? Well, uh, certainly the, you know, the crossing of the Red Sea is a dramatic story and raising of Lazarus and Jesus rising from the dead. Those are fantastic stories. But this passage right here in John 4 is to me the most unique and an inspiring passage because it's about Jesus talking to one person, one-on-one, no one else around. And the dynamics that take place and how Jesus shapes this conversation to reach out to this woman by the well, to me, is probably one of the most inspiring and encouraging passages. And so what we're going to do, we're going to kind of walk through it, and I'm going to stop along the way and explain some things as we go. So this is John chapter 4. The Pharisees, Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, and I'll talk about that in a second. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So as you can see, Jesus was down in Judea down here on the bottom part of the map. He had to go all the way up to Galilee, so he had to go through an area called Samaria. John is letting us know this because Samaria is not the kind of place you want to go through. <laughs> Samaria is not the kind of town or the area of the region that you really want to walk through if you're a Jew. And I'll explain more about that later on. 
But John's letting us know Jesus went through that area. And there was the well, Jacob's well. And today, I've been to Jacob's well. It's a picture of inside the, the, the Greek Orthodox maintained this site. And it is an active well even today. It's probably one of the most authentic Old Testament sites in all of Israel and the Holy Land. You can go there to Jacob's well and actually still drink water from the well. But of course, that's not how it looked like in the time of Jesus. In fact, it probably looked more like this. An open well in the middle of a courtyard or inside a village. And the scripture says that Jesus went there and visited this well. It says it was about the sixth hour. Now what that means is it's about noon because they counted the day, six o'clock in the morning, the first hour, and so on. So the sixth hour would be high noon, right at the heat of the day. And I'll make a point of that in a little bit. The scripture says that Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, Jesus got tired. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Well, think about that. Jesus growing tired. He can relate to us. How many of you from time to time on your journey get a little weary? <laughs> get, oh, yeah. <laughs> Life is like that. But we don't have a God that can't connect to us or can't relate to us. In fact, it says in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. I like the way the message puts it. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He has experienced it all. In fact, the scripture says that he's experienced everything that we can experience, with temptations, everything. That's good news for us. That's good news for me because in other religions and other faiths, the understanding of who God is, God is a power, God is a force. He's not personal. The idea that the, the, the almighty God can come and be with us and indwell in us is totally foreign to them. The religion of Islam teaches that Allah is so powerful, so grand, so big, there is absolutely no way that he can relate to us or be with us. There is absolutely no personal relationship between the believer and their God. He is an almighty, powerful force. That Christianity says is just the opposite, that God became one of us and experienced everything that we can experience. I like that. I love that. He's not that kind of alabaster statue in heaven. The Greek word there for, uh, let me back up one. The Greek word there for sympathize is sympathize, sympathize. Where do we get the word sympathize? Sympathize. It means he experienced. So I don't know what you're going through this day. I don't know what kind of uh, life's experiences you're going through. But the scripture says he's not out of touch with what you're going through. Whether you're going through physical issues or relational or financial, whatever it might be, our God knows and experienced what you're experiencing. That's good news. Well, let's read on. So Jesus is at the well. He's at Jacob's well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? 
And John puts a little parenthesis to let us know what's going on. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So there was no one there but Jesus and a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, <laughs> excuse me, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? In fact, I want to put a word in there. How dare you ask me for a drink? How can you ask me for a drink? And John puts parentheses in there, kind of fills in what's going on. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And that's true. The Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus broke two rules when he did this. When he turned to the woman and actually began to speak to her, he spoke to a woman. And Jews did not speak to women in public. And secondly, not only was she a woman, but John lets us know that she was a Samaritan woman. Jesus crosses all kinds of barriers in life. Doesn't matter who we are, where we come from, what kind of background we have, Christ crosses all of them. In fact, I like the idea that, that Jesus was counterculture. Everywhere he went, he, he, he seems like he really didn't care about the rich and mighty and powerful. He always gravitated to the underside of society. If there's anything that I've tried to do in my life, is that when I'm out in public or when I'm out in my ministry, my radar turns on and, and I want to reach out to the, to the underside of society. That's what compels me. That's what draws me. And I hope it's for you too that no matter who they are, what, where they come from, what race they are, I want to reach out to those that, that people just reject, that people just ignore, that people just want to turn away. And so John lets us know that he reaches out to this woman, a Samaritan woman. Who are the Samaritans? Why would she say to Jesus, <laughs> you're not supposed to be talking to me? Don't you know the protocol? Don't you know? Don't you have any manners in public? Well, it turns out that if you know your scripture, that the Samaritans were, were those Jews that were uh, carried off into captivity in the Old Testament. The Assyrians and the Babylonians defeated Israel in the north and and they brought with them all their pagan gods with them and all their idols. And as the, the time went by, the Jews that were in Israel to the north began to intermarry with the Assyrians and Babylonians and allowed their, their well, allowed their, uh, uh, their religions to influence them. And so out of that, the origins of the Samaritans, they were in the area of Samaria. They were known as, well, from the purebred Jew, they would look at the Samaritans as well, a half-breed. I know that's not a good word, but that's how they saw it. They were part Jews. In fact, there, there are Samaritans today that worship in their area. It's, it's sort of like Judaism, but it's not quite. They only use the first five books of the, of the Bible. They don't accept the rest of the, of the Old Testament. But today, there is a practicing group of Samaritans in Samaria. And so the Jews would... Uh, despise the Samaritans. In fact, the story that we have in the scripture of the good Samaritan, well, the word good Samaritan, the word good is not even in scripture. We've, we've given that parable that name because you see there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. All Samaritans are bad Samaritans. Remember the story, what prompted that? Jesus says, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And then someone says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus began to talk about a bad Samaritan. 
This man that you would think would not associate with Jews is the one who actually reached out with mercy and compassion and kindness to a Jew who was in need. Therefore, we call it the good Samaritan because Samaritans are bad. And so now Jesus is standing at this well with a woman who is outcast from society. Jesus answered her when she challenged him, you're not supposed to be talking to me. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. He just asked for a cup of water. She says, you're not supposed to be talking to me. And Jesus responds with this, this passage, this text that's really fascinating, isn't it? It's almost like he said, <laughs> you really don't know who I am. And if you knew who I was, not only would you ask, but you would ask for living water. Now, we're used to that phrase, living water. The Living Water Church or Living Water, we sang about it in our worship time. But in her day, this is a new thing, a new phrase, living water. Living water. Living water. Water that's living. Well, I've drank some water that had living things in it. <laughs> you probably have too. Living water? What in the world is that? Living water. Water that comes to life. Water that has life in it. I mean, how do you turn it around and make it into something that makes sense? So, she's confused, <laughs> as we would be. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. How can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? It's, it's a challenge. She's challenging this man now who, who said, if you only knew who I was, he would give you living water. It's like, well, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You think you're greater than our father Jacob who dug this well and gave it for us? As all his generations have come to this well and we've we pulled water out of this well for ourselves and our flocks and herds. Who do you think you are? Or she's saying, who are you? <laughs> Later on, we're going to find out that she knows a lot about men. But now she's challenging and she's saying, who are you? You're this, this mysterious Jewish man now that standing by the, by the well who, who came and I can see that he's thirsty and he asked for a drink. He's not supposed to be talking to me. Now he's talking about some sort of strange living water. Who are you? So he answers. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. She knows that. But whatever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, or I like to say, in fact, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Now put yourself in the mind of the Samaritan woman here. This man simply asked for a cup of water. Not supposed to be talking to her. He goes on about this living water. She challenges him and says, who, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus again challenges her back. But now he's on a different level. Now he's beginning to talk about the spiritual thirst, the spiritual hunger, her real need in life, not just getting the water out of the well to water her flocks or her home. Whoever drinks this water will never thirst. Now, wouldn't you like to bottle that? Well, the woman said, Sir, give me this water <laughs> so I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. It's almost like some sort of medicine show. <laughs> He's selling this, this tonic, this potion, this water, that if you drink it, you'll never have to come back again. You'll never be thirsty again. You notice what's going on, though? Jesus begins with physical water, quickly moves into talking about spiritual thirst and living water, but the woman doesn't catch on. When he says, the water I could give you, you will never thirst again, she doesn't at least publicly acknowledge to him that, she's, that he's talking about something deeper than the physical water. And so he's talking at one level and she's talking at another. She's still on the earthly realm. She's still on the earthly plane, still talking about having to come here and draw water every day. Sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep doing what I'm doing. She misses the point completely. Or she purposely misses the point. <laughs> she was thirsty in more ways than one. But she wouldn't let Christ in. She might have got a hint that Jesus was talking about something spiritual. Something different about this man. But I'm not going to allow him to come close into my life. I'm not going to allow this man who talked about living water and spiritual things to come into my life. When I was, uh, I grew up in a non-Christian home. And when I joined the Navy and, and early into my 20s, I just did the things that sailors do, you know. I don't have a tattoo. Don't ask me how I got there without a tattoo. Spend 20-some-odd years in the Navy without a tattoo. Nothing against tattoos, by the way. But a shipmate of mine, who was a Christian, was a Nazarene, named Dave. Dave, Dave was a different kind of guy. He, he would do things for me. He would love me as one guy could love another guy. He would polish my boots for me, polish my shoes for me without me asking. He, he was kind and generous to me. I knew he was a Christian. He invited me to go to the Nazarene church from time to time, and I, church, come on, Dave, this is 1970. You laugh, that's a long time ago, wasn't it? 
Oh. Good hip, Dave. <laughs> By the way, those of you who live long, you know, you know, that was the Jesus freak movement, right? You remember that? Late 60s, early 70s. I said, I know who you are. You're one of them Jesus freaks. <laughs> but he kept inviting me to go to church. And, of course, I... Dave had something in his life that I wanted badly. I knew it, but I wouldn't admit it. He had something in his life that I wanted so bad in my life, and that was peace. I didn't have it. I'd cram all kinds of stuff inside that, you know, didn't work. Dave had peace. Outwardly, I would tell Dave, church, the roof had fallen in, you know, something like that. The Bible's 2,000 years old. Come on, Dave, get hip. This is 1970. <laughs> but he kept inviting me. He kept loving me. And finally I said, all right, are there any girls at the church? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> so I went. <laughs> Outwardly, but inwardly, I was thirsty and hungry. My very first time, I walked into a Nazarene church in Vallejo, California, an altar call was given. As the preacher was preaching, I was sitting beside Dave, and I kept turning to Dave and saying, you told him everything about me. He goes, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. He knows the hearts of man. God knows the hearts of man. <laughs> and so I went down to the altar as an invitation was given. I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I knew I wanted change. I knew I wanted whatever this living water, whatever this new life was all about. And so I knelt at the altar. I did pray the sinner's prayer. I did ask Christ to come into my life, but not knowing fully what had happened into my life. I remember standing up and I had no emotional response at that time. I, but I was serious and sincere in my commitment. This was kind of an old school Nazarene church and one of the old fellas came up to me, patted me on the back and said, well, young fella, do you feel any different? Sarcastically, I said, well, I do have a cramp in my right leg. <laughs> well, I didn't know what he meant. Do you feel any different? Am I supposed to? Am I supposed to feel different when I make a commitment to Christ? Some do, some don't. But I made a decision to follow Christ. I made a decision to allow Christ into my life. I've told the Sunday school class this. You know how I knew that God was real and that Christ was in my life? You know how I knew it? This is going to sound strange to some of you, but this is how I knew it. My cussing stopped. Just like that. It was like, I didn't expect that. I didn't ask for that. It just stopped. My dad was a cusser. I was in an outfit <laughs> in the Navy. It was common to cuss. Next thing you know, I found myself. <laughs> yeah. Next thing you know, I found myself not cussing. It wasn't like, oh, Tom, you got to pull yourself by the bootstraps and stop saying that word. It fell away. It was like somehow... <laughs> Something was purging my life. 
that was my evidence for the existence of God, <laughs> that God stopped my cussing. I know it sounds trivial, but to me it was real. <laughs> and so I let Christ in. This woman, however, kept her, kept her guard up. She wouldn't let him in. And so Jesus changes the conversation here. He dramatically, you're talking about water and going to the well and living water, and this will become a spring of life. She's not catching on. She's not getting it. And so Jesus changes the conversation very abruptly. It's like right then he says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. What? What does that got to do with well and Jacob and water and living water? Why would Jesus do this? Go call your husband and come back. It's as if he's saying, okay, okay, lady, you're not getting it. You're not catching on. So here we go. Now I'm going to put my finger into your heart. Go call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. She didn't lie. She wasn't married. She's gone through five men and now man number six she's not married to. She wasn't lying, but she wasn't telling the truth either. But Jesus knows the hearts of men and women. That's why I think Jesus all of a sudden changes from talking about water and living water all the way now to putting the finger in the heart of her life and says, go call your husband. To a person hiding secrets, Jesus offered to share a secret. She was protecting herself, hiding herself, not letting him in. When we encounter Christ, we're confronted with a truth about who we are. When we see Christ and we're encountered with that, we're encountered with truth about who we are. <laughs> As a young man in high school, I remember young life would come to our school. I played the guitar and we'd sing the war protest songs. <laughs> back in the 60s. But the Young Life leader, his name was Bing, reached out to me. I still wasn't a Christian. One day he came to the school, and on, I remember him clearly in my mind, on the blackboard, he wrote the four spiritual laws and walked me through the four spiritual laws at the age of 16, 17 years old. Came down for the sinner's prayer, and he says, Tom, would you like to pray the sinner's prayer? And I prayed it, and I was bawling. I was bawling. From Bean's perspective, he thought that I accepted Christ in my life, but I did not. Because I couldn't get past one of the laws. The first law is God loves you and has a plan for your life, right? Those of you who remember the four spiritual laws. The second law was I'm a sinner <laughs> and I've messed it up. I got stuck on number two. And so even as I was saying this, I was still stuck at number two. I was bawling because I knew that I was lost and I was a sinner. And so even though I said the words, I didn't mean it. Christ comes to us. He's going to confront us about who we really are. Luke 5, 
Jesus knew what they, that's the crowd, were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Jesus knows us. If we think that somehow we can go around and say, well, uh, I don't have a husband. We think that somehow we're going to hide something from the Lord. We're fooling ourselves. So what does a woman do? What does a Samaritan woman do when Jesus now begins to hone in on the, the secret part of her life by asking, just, just go call your husband. Sir, I have no husband. What do you think she does? Watch this. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Of course he's a prophet. He just said, you've had five husbands and the man you now live isn't your husband. How in the world did he know that? He's a Jew from Galilee. He's in this little town of Sychar. How does he know who I am? Because he's the Lord. So she responds, oh, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. We would say today, you think? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And standing right there by the well of Sychar was the Mount Gerizim. This is a picture of the town of Sychar today. And that is where the Samaritans worship on that mountain. The Jews have their mountain in Jerusalem called Mount Zion. And so when Jesus gets close into her heart, she begins to get into a theological debate. A lot of us do that, right? I mean, people will do that. You, you begin to talk to them about your faith and your life and what's happened. And next thing you know, you go, they'll say, well, which Bible is right? King James or something else? Well, you know, they got the Lutherans and the Baptists, and the, which one's right? I, you know, what about this Catholicism stuff? You know, and they begin to get up these trivial points that have nothing to do about who they are in front of the Almighty God. I can't tell you how many times as a Navy chaplain, as I would be talking to some young Marine or sailor about their real needs and what's going on, and, and I could tell that that the Lord is leading me into a, into a place in their life, and then they want to throw up this theological barrier. <laughs> uh, hey, Chapman, what, what religion are you? Religion? Well, my uniform's a cross. I am in the faith of Christianity. That's what I stand for. Oh, no, 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 you know what I mean. I mean, uh, what color are you? Um, what denomination are you? That's irregardless. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and what he's done for my life and what he can do for you. Oh, come on, chaplain. Tell me what, what church. <laughs> you see, people want to get into that, that defensive position, and that's what she did. So she's essentially saying, our fathers worship on Mount Gerizim, and you fathers worship on, on Mount Zion. Which one's right? When we encounter truth, we often do anything to avoid it. when Christ comes into our lives and the Spirit comes into our lives and when that is revealed into our lives and we begin to see that, that well, we just need to be confronted with the truth. What do you do? Do you, do you fend yourself? Do you put barriers up? You're not supposed to be talking to me. Which mountain are we supposed to worship on? How do you respond when Christ gets closer and closer to your life? How do you respond? So, what does Jesus do next? She deflects it by trying to get off into this religious debate. 
Jesus declared, believe me, woman. And by the way, that phrase, believe me, woman, is not derogatory. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. <laughs> in other words, he's saying it doesn't matter. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him. The woman said, wow, this is heavy. This, this is heavy. <laughs> I don't understand. It's like she's saying, I don't understand all this stuff. Uh, This is pretty heavy. So she says, I know that this thing called the Messiah, the Christ, the John lets you know that the word Messiah means uh, the anointed one, the Christ. I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to me. Like this is pretty heavy stuff. Uh, I mean, this is pretty heavy for me. So all I know is that when the Messiah comes, he is going to explain all this stuff you've talked about. He's going, to, he's going to explain it to me. Can you imagine the look on her eyes, sitting by the well, when, she, when he finally looks her in the eye and says, I who speak to you am he. In other words, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I, I wish I had a you know, GoPro camera at that moment. <laughs> right, I'm mounted on the well. I don't know what her expression would have been, but she's been defending and deflecting and trying to get into a theological argument. And Jesus now says, I who speak to you, I am the Messiah. When Jesus encounters us, we're confronted the truth with who he is. When we come to church, we're confronted with who we are and we're also confronted with who he is. And so as he says that to the woman, I, I can imagine what her expression would be. He's not just a man. He's not just a Jewish man. He's not just a prophet. He declares himself to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And here's probably one of my favorite verses of this passage. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? (laughs) The disciples had gone off to get food. Now they they come walking back, and they see at a distance that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. And they kind of murmur to each other, is that that Jesus talking to a woman? And she's a Samaritan woman. But no one had enough courage to go up to Jesus and say, why are you talking to that woman, and why are you doing this? To be a disciple of Christ, I must place my own prejudices at the foot of the cross. Isn't it interesting? Here's the disciples brought with them, even as they confronted Christ right then and saw him with the Samaritan woman, were carrying with them the prejudices of their life. Now, uh, granted, it's John chapter 4. It's early on. But as we'll learn later on, if you read the New Testament, these disciples carry their prejudices with them throughout their lives, even into Acts. They didn't want to reach out to the Samaritan woman, but Christ did. They wouldn't even want to talk to her. They knew what the social mores were. They knew their place in their culture and society around them. Here is my next favorite passage. Then leaving 
her water jar. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Don't read over this passage lightly. <laughs> Leaving her water jar, she went to the town and said, Come and see the man who's told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and went toward him. This is what I propose. You may agree or disagree with me. This woman has been through five husbands. The man she's now living with is not her husband. I don't know what kind of woman she is. She's certainly gone against the culture, cultural norms of her day. Some of the clues are she's having to draw water at the sixth hour. Remember that? High noon. Usually women draw water as a group in the morning or in the evening. But here she is at the heat of the day. I propose to you she's having to do that because that's the only time this woman can go and draw water without being ridiculed about her lifestyle and who she is. If it's true that she's an outcast of the town because of who she is, if it's true that the town is a kind of pulls the curtains back, and, oh, there she is again out at the well. You know, you know who she has now? You know what man she has now? If it's true that the, the villagers pull back the curtains and say, oh, wait, there she is with another man at the well. Wait a minute. That's a Jew. How dare her? And if there was a telephone, uh, uh, never mind, never mind. What's the communications? Telephone, telegraph, tele, telewoman. I, I, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Now it's text. Do you know what she did? Somehow these villagers, in my mind, she was a Samaritan woman, but, but somehow she dressed differently, wore makeup differently. I don't know. <laughs> but if she's an outcast of the town, the fact that her life is wrapped up in drawing water at noon, the fact that the John notes leaving her water jar behind, to me, is that break, is that, is that moment when she stops. And she, she goes to the town, and if it's true that she's an outcast of society, an outcast of town because of her lifestyle, come and see the man who's told me everything I've done. And the villagers believe her. They don't say, oh, there she goes, talking about another man again. Instead, she says, come and see the man who's told me everything, and the scripture says, and they followed her. They went with her to go see this man. I propose to you that somewhere along the way between at the well and the village, that something happened to this woman's life. The scripture doesn't record it. John doesn't say that she says, I accept the Messiah now. But somewhere along the way, 
something happened so that when the villagers saw her, they believed her. Maybe she washed her face. Maybe she changed her clothes. I don't know, but somehow along the way, the villagers in her integrity, her credibility changed, at least in the eyes of the villagers. When we're encountered with Christ, we're confronted with him, we're confronted with a responsibility to act on the truth, and that's what this woman did. Now, instead of defending and defending and getting into a theological argument, the woman somehow then, you know, Jesus puts their finger on her heart. Finally, she says, this must be the Messiah. And she acts on it. So much so that within a short period of time, she's a credible witness for the Messiah. What a remarkable thing. And she goes to the village and tells them that. Change takes place. Living water springing up to eternal life cannot be contained in earthen pots. Now she has this spring in her life. You cannot keep it a secret. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. There's no such thing as individual faith in Christ unless you express it and belong to a body of Christ. You have to act on it as she did. And now we're going to jump to 39 and see what happens. This is the end of the story. This is powerful. Listen to what happens to the village. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. Whoa. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, now they're talking to her, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And that's how it ends. Think of this, ladies and gentlemen. If this woman truly was an outcast in her town and her village, her whole life was wrapped up in carrying these clay jars at the heat of the day and drawing water and, and the life that she was living, going from one man to the next, to the next, to the next. And now she meets another man who is different, who is the Messiah, and her life is changed. So much so that the people around her believe her, and their lives are changed, and the whole village turns out, and they all believe because of her faith. That's remarkable. We sang a song earlier about thirst. Scripture says, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. I've never been to the place where I was consumed with satisfying my thirst with physical water. Never been there. I've been thirsty, work hard, need a drink. But not where every fiber of my being is, like an animal would be, to find water. But I do know what it's like to have my spiritual life empty <laughs> and dry. 
We were talking in Sunday school class this morning about the hardships and trials of life, and I was thinking to myself, didn't say it out loud, there have been times, and I'm sure probably you have too in your own life, where walking the Christian faith and walking the Christian walk was so hard, so, so difficult, that you just stopped for a moment and gave thought. You know what? It'd be easier not to live this way. Just walk away from it. I look at the world around me and I say, <laughs> you know what, I, I, I just, I'm tired of this. Uh, it, this is too much for me. I, I'm just going to walk away from my faith in Christ and walk away from God and go back into, go back into the, to where there might be freedom, more freedom for my life. I think about that from time to time. I don't know about you. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. But there are times when I thought, you know, it'd be easier just to walk away from this and I'll have a lot more to do, a lot more money. And uh, I have Sunday and I could watch the Seahawks game. I don't know. <laughs> But then I think, wait a minute, Tom. Wait a minute. You want to go back to that? That's where you were. That's why you became a Christian, because you were tired of that life. <laughs> remember that, Tom? You remember how thirsty and hungry you were? You remember how dry your soul was when you were trying to find answers to life? And you found it in Christ. That pulls me back again. I can never walk away my faith. I can never walk away. I'm not trying to be bragging or anything like that because I know God is real. I know Christ lives. I know what he's done to my life and to my family's life. And I know he loves you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here and I, I don't know where you are in your walk in life and I know some of you are probably thinking, boy, my well is empty. <laughs> it is dry. I am at a place in my life where I, I really need to find that again. I really need to find that, 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 that eternal well that Christ talks about and bringing to us a new life and a new hope. And so I'm going to invite, as they sing this song, as you sing it, we're just going to open up the altars uh, this morning. If, if you'd like to come and kneel before here and just simply say, Lord, I... I'm at the place where uh, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty for more of you.